Full Service Radio is supported by Compass, the future of real estate in the metro D.C. area and beyond. Discover more at compass.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis. We're broadcasting live from our fabulous glassed-in studio here in the otherwise also fabulous Line Hotel here in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. We've got not only is today's show going to be a lot of fun, but it's with two people that we, we really like. We really like everybody on the show, but these guys in particular. Uh, husband and wife team, uh, Debbie Moser and Mitch Berliner are here. It's, it's kind of hard to describe them except in a very umbrella way. They're food entrepreneurs. They have founded and, and run successful uh, farmer's markets. Uh, Mitch was the ice cream king of Washington for a thousand years. They got salami. Where's your crown, man? They got, they got. Where is it? It's got to be in that bag got, somewhere. There we go. My hat indoors. Washington Nationals cap. <laughs> right. So, and and uh, we're going to talk to these guys about a lot of things. Um, I mean, I think people who go to farmers markets kind of just they don't stop and think about what it takes to stand up that kind of business, find all the farmers, organize all things. So we're going to talk about that. Well, I, I think. Actually, I'd like to start it from a different angle. I wasn't starting it there. I okay. was just saying. Well, that now true. that you're saying it, I'm, I'm taking it. <laughs> so argumentative it. all I'm the time. All taking right. it away from you. Yeah. I think what's really interesting is in the last 30 years, you've seen a dramatic change in how people access their food. And farmer's markets is a huge uh, reason of that. Uh, 30 years ago... I. I don't know how many markets, farmer's markets, were in the D.C. market. Well, there weren't many at all. And according to the USDA, mm-hmm. uh, there's now a nationwide close to 9,000. Right. So it's been growing exponentially. The growth has been. And people do want to know, more and more people want to know about where their food comes from. And that's not just, you know, foodie elites or people with a lot of money. I mean, that crosses all economic barriers. And food markets are now, these farm food markets are now available in almost every area of the D.C. metro area. Um, so, but Don't you think that that's, it's interesting that it took that long for people to, with all that information about antibiotics in our meats and the fertilizers and all that stuff for people to start being concerned that, you know, that they I mean, actually... but that's info from the last 15 years. I know, but I'm saying, look how long it took for, for people to sort of, for, the, for everybody in the street to kind of get the message. Well, I mean, before we get into Mitch's background, I can only speak to what a farmer's market meant to me when I was younger versus what it meant now. I mean, it was sort of like anybody who sort of brought their own bag to the grocery store, you know, like in the 70s or 80s or went to farmer's markets. You know, farmer's markets to me were like places where... Farmers um, were. No, no, it was like predominantly Amish farmers because I grew up in New Jersey and you got candied apples. I mean, that was basically it. You know, it wasn't anything about actual farmed products. And I think when I think of people like bringing their own bags, now we all bring our own bags everywhere. Like those were like aging hippies who, you know, it just didn't seem like there was reason. You're sitting in a room with three of them, (laughs) by the way. I'm just saying that like it it has come full circle. So Mitch, I want to start with you because you have been in the DC food scene for a long time. And um, I, I think we should start with that. 
Well, thank you. Thanks mm-hmm. again for having Debbie and I on the show. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate it. No, thanks uh, for the check. That was awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you anyway. Okay. So, uh, bottom line, uh, I was born and raised a foodie. I think I borrowed that line. But okay. anyway, um, I grew up in a home where food was always important, 1950s, 1960s. It was really a little odd uh, that cooking was really big, except for my uh, friends of Italian heritage. Uh, people were glad to um, get all these TV dinners and other things because they saw their parents and grandparents spending enormous amount of time in the kitchen. But uh, so food was always part of our uh, growing up and my mother said don't to my brother and I don't rely on women to do the cooking for you so anyway we we're always interested in food we cooked as a family your mother sounds like a troublemaker and- to me <laughs> of course I was a troublemaker I mean that goes without saying I'm going to have my surprise 70th birthday people say why is it a surprise I said well if you knew me in high school and college it's a surprise I'm here but uh, anyway um, so when I was in college I started working in restaurants, actually in high school, and then um, moved to D.C. when I was 17 years old. Been here 52 years. You do the math. And, uh, but from where? From New York? From New York, Long Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, although my parents lived in Washington, D.C. prior to the war, and my father enlisting. And uh, so, make a long story short, the first thing that uh, I did was 1971, we opened up a gourmet to go place uh, in the farm women's market in Bethesda, prepared our own uh, foods, Mm -hmm. and that was way ahead of the time. Now you can go to any supermarket and get prepared foods, but they weren't doing that. No, not in the D.C. market. I mean, Balducci's maybe, and, you know, um, Zabar's in New York, but nobody in D.C. was doing anything like that. Not at all. I mean, the original Balducci's, not what what the monstrosity is. Right. But uh, anyway, uh, to make a long story short... uh, from there, um, we uh, ended up uh, with four farmers markets in Montgomery County mm-hmm. uh, in the 1970s, and there was no other farmers markets. Really, and where were those farm? And was it, what was that farmers market called? Uh, Berliner's farm stand. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty clever. Catchy. That's very catchy. Should have hired on. my agency to help you with the naming. <laughs> right. As a matter of fact, when we went into our next distribution ice cream business that you mentioned, we called that. Berliner Foods. I figured I knew how to spell a few words, and so I would <laughs> stick with Let's that. Let's keep it simple. Yeah, but keep foods it was what? F-U-D-S. And right. Z, I right. always tell people, don't be cute with the naming of stuff. Um, yeah. And so I had the farmer's markets for about six years. Uh, started like 1974 with the ice cream and specialty frozen food business. We introduced Haagen-Dazs, Ben & Jerry's, Dove Bars, organic frozen things. It's really ahead of its time. It took a long time for it to really get going, but uh, ultimately it did. And I spent 38 years in the ice cream and frozen food distribution business. And uh, about 12 years ago, I sold my interest in the distribution business. And I thought, you know, I can't believe there's not a comprehensive farmer's market in Bethesda where we live. So what happened to your original farmer's markets? Did you just... I actually just closed them you just said I just because don't want to do uh, this. Our, we got so busy with the distribution business. I you closed couldn't do it. both. And I just, it was like three o'clock in the morning till 11 at night, six days a week. So I had to get at least five hours sleep. So right, I couldn't somewhere. do it all. Okay. And so 
Deb. So how did I get it? Where, this? how did you get roped into all this? Well, I have a, a varied background. I have a background in advertising, marketing, uh, business development, teaching. Here in D.C.? <laughs> Here in D.C. Where? Um, all over. I started with Woodward and Lothrop back in the 1970s. I was with Hicks in the 1970s. Were oh, you? my God, oh. competitors. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, but we did a lot together, too. Um, we did. And I was, uh, I actually worked with some of the most famous photographers that went on to become really good photographers. I would hire them to come in and do a six-week shoot on a white sale, and I went around the country and found the best guys I could so that I could learn from them because I was also a photographer. You know, Jim oh, Wells cool. was one of my big yeah, buddies. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. So um, I, I lo- always loved to cook. I did not come from particularly a foodie family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was a fair cook, but my dad and my uncle were great bakers, and they were really into desserts, and they could bake. So I learned a lot of my baking from them. Uh, along my career path, I did get a certification from L'Academy de Cuisine. I worked with... Um, one of the White House pastry chefs and learned how to really become... Patrice Olivier? Uh, no, no, it was... Um, or Walter uh, Street? Uh, Ramsdale. Oh, okay. And um, he, taught, he taught me, and um, we had a, a lot of professors in those days. But, mm-hmm. um, so I became a very, very good baker. Um, and I was, I was the executive director of the Metropolitan Center for the Visual Arts in Rockville. And I had taken that project on, and while I was there, we had to build a new building. That meant raising a lot of money, like $13 million. And by the time the building opened, I was tired. And Mitch had said to me, as he was just saying, "Um, there's no farmer's market in Bethesda, and I'm tired of going downtown. So I said, why don't you talk to the guys that I worked with, uh, Federal Realty, and see if there's something in Bethesda. Right. And he Because at that point, originally... A farm, like it's like at that point that real estate companies were like, oh, this is a great amenity. And it becomes a real selling point when you're doing like a town well, center. This was actually before they figured out it was a great amenity. Oh, okay. Because that's where it is now. It is now. Right? But at that time, it wasn't. And so Mitch did go to them and said, you know, we have this, you should open a farmer's market here. Mm-hmm. And they s- said to Mitch, that's a great idea, and we know nothing about it. And this is in downtown Bethesda, This is right? Bethesda, Bethesda Row. Bethesda, Bethesda Row. Row. Right, which was, how long ago is this? That was that 10 was years. That was 11 ten, years ago we 11. spoke to him. I went with Ann Brody, yeah. and uh, right. we said we have, we're both sort of retired, and we're happy to help you. You don't need to pay us. We just would like to see this for the community. Mm-hmm. And as Debbie said, it was time to go in downtown. And like Debbie said, we don't know anything about it. Would you do it? And so Anne and I said, like idiots, yes. Right. And the rest is history. But I think what people should realize what an is altruist. that but Look at you. Bethesda Row, you know, was a, a multi phased real estate development. Right. And when you guys started that um, alleyway, the gal the gallery. Well we actually started that was a second part. Okay. So we actually started on Elm Street right behind the movie theater oh, right. that was there. And there was a little parking lot there. You right. know what, for people who, because there are people listening literally all over the world, Bethesda is a suburb of Washington, mm-hmm. and it's a wealthy suburb. I grew up in, in Bethesda, that area of Bethesda Row, and that's really why this is so interesting, used to be auto repair shops, that's right. dry cleaners, right. and crap. Right. They had that's a right. cement plant. Right, there was yeah. a big cement plant where there's a, where there's a Mexican restaurant now. Exactly. So that, that redevelopment, that phased in, uh, very modern town center-ish kind of thing was coming, and um, I think, you know... 
the, the ability to drive traffic to it because they didn't advertise. It was really build it and they will come. That's right. So, you know. So as you were starting the farmer's market, the first one in Bethesda, how did you go about sourcing farmers and producers? We begged. Well, well there really? was a certain we, amount of begging. There's we, no question. We begged. But, but did you already know them? I, I knew a lot of people to be candid, just by going downtown to different farmers markets. Because you were pretty involved. I mean, Anna, you, were, you were a supporter of Fresh Farm, and both you and Ann have been a part of the D.C. food scene right. for a very so long time. So we knew food producers, mm-hmm. and we knew farmers, and so... Because uh, I can't remember. Wasn't Ann with Whole Foods for a while? No, Sutton Place. Sutton Place. She was Sutton with Sutton Place. Sutton Place. Right. She opened up, Ann opened up the Giant Someplace Special, which was Giant's right. first venture into right, right, that. Right. So to make a long story short... Um, we actually, you know, put together a pretty good plan. We had the demographics, and we said to people like Mark Toygo from mm-hmm. Toygo Farms and people from Twin Springs and others that we knew, right? Um, take a leap of faith because we think that in time, this market will uh, be successful. We think it's got the right kind of people. They're educated. And it's got a lot of density and, uh, and money. careful what you wish for. Well, but you know, what's interesting about it is that there is an education curve when even, even in very wealthy areas where people go to the giant and get eggs for $1.99 and then they go to the farmer's That's market right. and eggs are $6, you know, for a dozen. So there, there was a learning curve. I, I would have to assume initially in the first couple of years of educating people on why the extra dollars matter for small farms. Well, of course. I mean, Debbie's got a great line that she uses when people go, I can get cherry tomatoes at the box store for X, Y, Z. Right. And Debbie says, you absolutely can. And they're coming from Mexico or other places where people are paid terrible wages. And where you could support local farms, which help the local economy, keep green space, and all the other good reasons, uh, that's your choice. Mm-hmm. Oh, and P.S., the number one reason, I think at the end of the day, any farmer's market successful, is it's about taste. If you right. have a peach from the supermarket or a peach from a farmer's market, well, but it's also, it's also about health, is what I was, and yeah. that's that what I was talking about before. So yeah. as you've grown, as... Um, Central Farm Markets has expanded. How are you? Because there are four. There are four. Te- well, we started with Bethesda Central. Right. And then um, Federal Realty, who had you know given us this lot to start on, came mm-hmm. to us about four or five years later and said, we're building Pike and Rose. And that was right when they were going to start ripping down the old strip mall. Right. And they were going to build this magnificent new town center development, mixed use And we want you to come in and start a farmer's market and be the first one in so that people can know what's coming and, and, you know, we really like what you're doing. So we said, okay. Mm -hmm. And at that point, now you've got two. So we rebranded and we said it's Central Farm Markets and each market will then have the location name. So Pike, Central Farm Market, Bethesda Central, Mosaic Central. Got it. But... How, as these markets are growing and as your brand is growing, you know, you're, it's just not a bunch of farmers in there. You right. have producers, you have craft artisans. And listen, the craft artisan scene in the D.C. market has grown tremendously with incubators like Tastemakers and oh, Mess sure. Hall and Union Kitchen. So how do you go about accessing 
all of them, the farmers and the artisans, and deciding where they're best featured at the markets. Because you're curating these markets. To, you want the clientele at each market to shop these vendors. That's right. And, and your use of the word curating is right on. Uh, we're very deliberate in, what, in who we take into the markets, what kind of vendors we have, how many farms are we going to feature, how different those farms are. Um, and we also have become an incubator for small businesses. So while you have the incubators in D.C. that are incubating small food businesses, a lot of them are starting at the farmer's market. Right. And so on our show yesterday, we had Timber Pizza and Call yeah. Your Mother. And, you know, they started in um, Union Kitchen and then they started in the farmer's markets. And now, even though they have a brick and mortar and another brick and mortar actually opening, they're staying, they're staying yeah. at the yeah. farmer's markets, which I think is kind of fascinating. Well, there's something about be selling direct to your customer and having that interaction. When you go into brick and mortar, there's a layer that separates the owner from the customer. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're finding is they like to be there. Also, they're getting feedback, immediate feedback. Um, and we'll talk about that later when we go into meat crafters. But you get immediate feedback from your customers. I like this. I use it this way. Mm -hmm. um, I've been using, you know, all sorts of interactions go back and forth. So the incubator part of this, of our markets, has become very important for small businesses to I start. Bet. And so when uh, let's talk about some of these producers that you have now at market, like what are some of the more interesting ones that you're like, yeah, if you had told me five years ago, I'd have somebody selling X at my farmer's market. I would have said no way. Like, Shelled what's, peas. No, well, I mean, what's there? What's there that's really unique to your market? Well, I wouldn't say per se it's unique, but it's a, a top quality line. Say uh, dress it up dressing as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and to Deb's point completely is that they still come to our market, but they're in Whole Foods. I think they even got into some major supermarket chains. She's on the West mm -hmm. Coast. But the owner comes herself many days. She wants the feedback, just like Debbie said. We, they recently came out with three new products, three mm -hmm. different dressings. So that's the way. What do you think? And they do a beautiful job of displaying. Uh, she does. She, do, she, um, she puts uh, all of her... like. Carrots or cucumbers, right. she like displays them beautifully, oh, like upright. Artful. Yeah, it's you can't help but try things because it looks so pretty. And we're proud to say we've lost some of these people. We're actually proud to say we had because a, they've moved up. Right, they've we've had a chocolate right. guy when we first started ten years ago on the lot behind Haleo Restaurant, and uh, they yeah, just. But said, some of these, we're not coming these, anymore. You, we're so busy producing and selling. Wholesale. Oh, that's great. You and mentioned we just Mark say, Toigo. I mean, he's become. I mean, you know, he's Picasso. A, the Picasso of beef. Not know. beef. He's produce. His uh, jars. Produce, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, sorry, I was so, thinking of uh, who's the other guy that you introduced us. The, the oh, lamb. Oh, the uh, well, the uh, meat fellow, Liberty Delight. Liberty. Liberty, Liberty sorry, Delight. Great story about. Uh, we love his backstory. Some of the backstories I give tours at the market. So anybody who's visiting Washington who hears this broadcast can go on the website, centralfarmmarkets.com. Mm -hmm. And we love to give tours. Debbie does it in Virginia. I do it in Maryland. I think the tours are really important. And I, I, what I would love to see more of is like concierges. Like when people come to town, like let me book you a tour at the farmer's market. I just think 
learning about the producers, learning their backstories, just makes it even more exciting to understand where the eggs came from or why, like, why Liberty Farms is, you know, so fabulous, like what they do that's so great. Or I remember one time we came to market and you're like, you have to meet my salad guys. And I was like, it's just salad. He's like, no, no, no. You got to meet my salad guys. Do you know what I mean? And it's a great backstory with all these people. So when we do the tours, people hear the backstories and they just say, I didn't know. I didn't know. And they love it. There's no charge for the tours Mm -hmm. uh, per se. And uh, we give them, we just had, uh, I'm going to mess up the name, the Shane Rotisserie. Uh, that group, uh, they just uh, came with about a dozen people at the market, and they were actually fascinated. And, and the, one of the fellows that writes for the articles about it say, we're usually just talking about chefs and cooking mm-hmm. and wine. But to see where their stuff comes from was really interesting for us. Well, the, the other thing I was going to say that's interesting about all this is that when we first started doing Foodie and the Beast, this 10 years ago, they were talking about the death of the small farmer and the independent farm and mass agriculture was going to take everything. And there's been this blossoming of independent farmers. And I guess one of the questions I have is, are you at the point now where you have farmers coming to you saying, can I get in and there's yes. no room? And Unfortunately, the answer is, uh, yes, we are. And I say unfortunately because we can't take in everybody. Right. And, and there uh, has to be a selection. Yeah, we you ha- can't have six people selling tomatoes. Well, right. you can, but what we do at our markets is we we have a very deliberate way of um, put the, putting the farmers it in. And we have farmers that come from the northern neck in Virginia all the way up to Pennsylvania. That will spread out the season. So when the northern neck is getting something, for example, strawberries in the spring, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Pennsylvania farmers don't have them yet. By the time the northern neck is out of them, Pennsylvania's got them. So we can spread that season out throughout the farm. So it's kind of a deliberate, um, and we have organic and non-organic or naturally grown. and So different parts of the area and different uh, items. Why have non-organic? I mean... Oh, sorry. I'm too far from the <laughs> microphone. Hello there. Yeah. Why have non-organic? I mean, isn't part of this whole no, kind do of you know, do you know that getting the certification for organic is like bullshit, well, right? There's, yeah. Well, there's, that there's is, but, but, but having a legitimately organic product that has no sprays on it and no... Right, you but know, you don't have to be certified. You c- the problem is, is that if you have to be certified for small farmers... They have to spend a ton, a of, ton cash. of money. Well, yeah. yeah, that's the case that we talked about. Oh, the salad guy. You got to come to see the salad guy. Right. He does not spray anything. He's proud to show you. See the little holes in my arugula? Right. They go, yeah, what's that? He goes, Bugs. that's from an insect. Right. <laughs> right. You know, we and don't if you spray. But he is a one-man show for the most part. Mm-hmm. He can't spend three more hours doing paperwork on a daily basis. Right, It's, it's exactly. onerous, it's expensive, and if you talk to our farmers, they'll tell you about the pest management uh, controls they use that are not uh, toxic. Um, they have all sorts of ways of controlling things. Most of our farmers are very concerned, all of them, I would say, are very concerned about the land, the, um, the use of chemicals, which we don't want, uh, and they are very open about how they control pests and how they grow. Well, I, I think that makes sense. And, um, well, I mean, I believe in organic produce, but I think I'm curious how you um, s- explain that to newcomers to the market who feel, you know, there's, you know, people who buy the pitch that organic is the only way to go as opposed to local, 
you know, like if I had a local peach and an organic peach from somewhere, you know, somewhere over 100 miles away, I'm going local, obviously, because local is the smarter choice. Well, what you said is uh, very interesting. Uh, When it comes, every one of our markets has organic USDA certified farmers. So Mm -hmm. if if you've got to make sure 1000% you have an option at all four of our markets. So that's that's number one. I will make a comment about peaches. Um, the, it's very difficult here on the East Coast to grow tree fruit because of all the rain and the fungus. Mm-hmm. So, um, But just like Debbie said, they have uh, all kinds of programs, and we have some farmers, um, we can't really talk about it now because we don't know if it's going to happen, that are trying to actually have organic uh, tree uh, fruit, but very difficult to do it on mm-hmm. the East Coast. You don't see much of it, and like you say, if you want if you want taste, you're gonna have to go for local. You might get organic from three thousand miles away because they're grown in the desert, right. but it's picked weeks before right, ahead it of time. Be. So, how do you go about discussing that with? your clientele, your shoppers? Well, we get a lot of questions. We'll have people come up to the info tents and ask us about them. Uh, The first thing we will tell them is, let's go talk to the farmer. Let them tell you directly Mm -hmm. what they're doing so that you understand how they're growing and what what produce they do have. Many have a mixture, so some are, are organic, some are not. Um, and that's we try to guide them in that way. But we, I think, by letting them talk directly to the farmer, they get a better picture than having just my sure. opinion of well, what I think. I mean, that's the beauty of the farmers market right. model, right. anyway. That you can really chat with people, provided, of course, that the the farm stand has people behind the farm stand who can, you know, have a conversation right. about their product. And I would say, for the most part, most of our farmers are there. There's mm-hmm. somebody from the farm there that can answer a question. Right. Even uh, if it's not the owner of the farm. Yeah, they're all knowledgeable. They work there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they take a lot of pride in what they do and, and what they bring to the market. And I also will add that um, in terms of vetting, and mm-hmm. uh, none of our meat producers have uh, use hormones, don't add any hormones, no antibiotics. So mm-hmm. that's, well, that's what I was a no ask. go. Yeah. What are the criteria for selecting a new vendor, whether it's produce or, or well, you at, know, a pig farmer or whatever? At this point, we have about 130 vendors that we manage over the four markets. So now it's become, uh, where do we have an opening? What, what, where is the need? Uh, most of our farms don't leave. They mm-hmm. love being with us. Most of our vendors love being with us, but they don't leave. So getting a new farm in, uh, we were lucky this year. We opened a new market at Westfield, Montgomery, and I was able to take in two new farmers. So that made me feel really good to be able to expand that uh, So the guys that, that are at the other farmers' markets just set up another stand? So, and- yeah, and we'll call them and we'll say we're opening a new market and we'll bring them in mm-hmm. um, for very deliberate reasons, as I said before, uh, based on location or yeah, what the they mix, have. right. But uh, in but ter- I, I feel like your Bethesda market is ginormous. It How is. many vendors are at that market? 65. Well, um, uh, yeah, we have 60, 63 when we're full. But we, in another sense, we really have like 85. So you might say, well, what is it? Well, we rotate vendors in. Okay. Obviously not farmers because mm-hmm. you need your produce weekly. Right. But we'll have – we actually – 
were the pioneers in the state of Maryland, allowing wineries to come to farmers markets and spirits and spirits and now. spirits. And beer, do you have beer there? Yes, we, do. we you have, have beer all three, too, which is amazing. And we will give every. We want to give everybody a shot. Mm-hmm. So we'll have different distilleries, different breweries. We have a farm wineries. brewery, one of the first farm breweries to to open in Maryland. Uh, they were one of our first breweries. To right. Open. So we we actually uh, a number of years ago went with our local state delegate, mm-hmm. uh, Brian Feldman, to Annapolis to uh, change the legislation because most places in the United States, wineries were welcomed. Oh, and, isn't that but amazing? not in Maryland. But now you only have, in Maryland, local wine. Yes, it's Maryland it is, wine, right? right. The yeah. way it is in I mean, that's every... Only fair. S- yeah. Well, you can't cross state lines. Yeah. So right. I couldn't that's, bring Virginia wine up to... But now can state. you have Virginia wine at Mosaic? Yes, oh. and we have. Oh, that's and amazing. We've had, yeah. And it's the same rule, frankly, um, all across the country. Mm-hmm. If it's a winery that's growing in that state, they can go to any farm market within now that state. What about state. for brewers and distillers? The same thing. They have to be within the state. So, uh, I mean, every law is different, and not every uh, state allows uh, breweries and distilleries. So, mm-hmm. Maryland went from being really behind the times to catching to up. Like more than catching up. You can get all three. You need to take Yeah, we do. Okay, so we are going to wrap up on our farmer's market angle for uh, for now. Because um, when we get back, because you guys didn't have enough on your plate, uh, you decided literally. To, literally, you decided to launch an entire other business, uh, a local uh, craft artisan business called, uh, well, Skinny Salamis. And, uh, it's too bad this meat isn't, crafters. Uh, we meat aren't crafters. on TV because... I know, there's so much here. Meat crafters. You, you, they brought in a meat slicer. Well, because we're going to be that eating duck best prosciutto. Hello. I remember taking off the top of my okay. thumb at my pizza place once. <laughs> okay, all right, on that note. Uh, this is David and Nikki Nellis. It's Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast at the Line Hotel. We'll be back in just a second. There we go. We're back on Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis. And we're talking to husband and wife team uh, Deborah Moser and Mitch Berliner about their their many enterprises. Uh, we're still talking about uh, farmers markets. And I think one of the, the aspects that we've got to cover is is the, the kind of good and how much good you guys do in the community. Because mm-hmm. you don't just 
promote farmers and 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 local, but you're helping a lot of our really our neighbors in need uh, with fundraising and with food and lots of other things. So, uh, Deborah, why don't you just tell us about that? Uh, the, uh, it's probably our our most uh, our proudest moment at the farm markets. Um, we work in Maryland with Mana Food Center mm-hmm. and in Virginia with Food for Others. Uh, at the end of each market, uh, we glean. They do what they call gleaning. And Mana will send a truck in Maryland to come. And the farmers, we have a program through the state of Maryland where the farmers are given some money and we buy the produce from them. And it is then collected and taken back to the food bank. But it, is this produce... That just doesn't sell that day, or is it produce? Because I thought gleaning was also um, food, um, you know, vegetation, fruit, like ugly, ugly food. It's uh, not. It's no. uh, okay. this is specifically food that did not sell at the farmers markets over the weekend, mm-hmm. and you will see bins of gorgeous lettuce and tomatoes and melons and all sorts peaches. of peaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, just go back to the, uh, and we've gotten letters from patrons who use the. Uh, the food services, and they thank us. Mm-hmm. Thank you for letting us have local. Thank you for sending the food. It was fresh. Uh, so we're very proud of that. And in Virginia, there are volunteers that come and will literally come with bins every Sunday, load up their cars, and take them back to the f- uh, food for others or some of the churches. So, and are those food banks, or is this food being prepared? No, they're food banks. They're food banks. Yeah, yeah. That's and amazing. sometimes they'll cook they'll cook something they'll take the carrots or the tomatoes if the and they'll cook it up and and do something with it other times it goes directly fresh out mm. to the to the patron so i'm very proud to say in the last five years in maryland mm-hmm. that we've facilitated over three hundred thousand pounds of fresh local delicious nutritious local food mm-hmm. being uh, sent to the hungry among us, mostly children. Right. But in addition to that, we have often a nonprofits. We don't charge anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have voter registration drives. We have the uh, rescue squad come in and teach our patrons about CPR. Mm-hmm. We've done blood drives. Um, you name it. We've got all kinds of things that we're always doing. And we also feature, I think it's important to say, we feature local Music. So right. we, we have uh, kids from the high school jazz band. So are you saying that my band can finally get a <laughs> yes. gig? Yes. Wow. You'll we, have to take I'll a take turn. Two right. cobs of corn and a tomato, and we'll We play. also have uh, coming up in Virginia, we're doing um, a whole diabetes awareness day. And we have everything from the dogs that, um, that work with detect, the, yeah. detect to uh, screenings and. Uh, all sorts of good things Well, though, I was going to ask that question as well. Um, what is the education component at the market? Because like you were saying earlier, like sometimes people don't know, like you brought in gooseberries, right. but you called them something else. I what? called them ground cherries. Ground cherries. Um, not everybody's familiar with the product. You know, it's covered in a husk. Right. Um, what is, is there an education component that goes on at the market? Well, absolutely. We have chef demos and we always like to feature something that, uh, We'd like to keep the recipes simple so mm-hmm. people could do it at home, but we also like to incorporate something that they might not normally well, use. And so, every farmer's an educator, too. So. Absolutely, right. Right. and the people at their stand. And there is a lot of sampling that goes there's, on. Oh, oh my God, there's tons yeah. of sampling that goes on. And the, and it's the, like uh, a smorgasbord. It is. You can get full very quickly. The people will at the stand, uh, they'll tell you how to prepare something or how, how they make it. 
or as Mitch and I like to do, we walk the markets. And as you mentioned with the gooseberry, the ground cherry, I was at a stand the other day and a woman was looking puzzled. She was looking at these and I said, let me show you what they are. And I opened it up and I said, here, taste it. And she said, my gosh, these are delicious. What do you do with them? And then I told her what she could do with them, you know, and you could just eat them. You can eat them. You can put them in a salsa. You can cook with them. They go great if you're cooking chicken. So she said, I had no idea. And if you hadn't come by, I would never have known what these were. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I think it's such, um, it's so important for people to know because there's so many, it's when you go to the farmer's market, it's not just like red tomatoes, you know, there's heirloom tomatoes, there's all sorts of lettuces, there's um, a variety of stone fruits. Of apples. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you we know, love so to much. talk that up at the market. Uh, like today, we brought in also, we probably on a typical day during the height of the season might have uh, 15 varieties of tomatoes and cherry tomatoes, mm-hmm. or, um, lots of them heirloom. We brought heirloom cherry tomatoes in just as an example, and I'll just leave you with the last example, like shishito peppers. Right. A lot of people don't have a clue about them, so we love to feature them. I love to talk them up and say, do you know what these are? And they go, no. And Sometime we I'll, I'll tell you what shishito means in Japanese. But, <laughs> but actually, if you're anywhere within... Show. Near the D.C. area, it is a trip to go to one of these markets because when Mitch is there, it's like watching a whirling dervish That's true. in action. Live so. entertainment. Hey, yo, you how need, you doing? You don't need the music. That's right. Which is funny. So let's switch off because right. entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs. And, uh, but I'm going to get a gooseberry. You couldn't. There. I'll give you a gooseberry, honey. Uh, so Family show. You guys yeah. couldn't. Not Actually, really. no, the other show. We're on the, the internet. We can, say bad, we can say it's, bad words on this uh-huh, show. It's true. Um, you guys, you know, you were talking about the ice cream business and the farmers markets, and it was too much work, and bump, 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 and suddenly you go into the now we got too much work charcuterie again. business. Well, actually, they went hand in hand. They started about the same time. Right. That's what I thought. So when you what's were, wrong with you when you were deciding? Um, I wait. don't take Ritalin. <laughs> okay. Right. So meat crafters. What was the initial concept? Well. I'll let Debbie take that. All right, Debbie, take okay, it. Okay, so when Mitch turned 60, mm-hmm. he took a year off, and he called it the year of Mitch, and he did all sorts of fantastic things. He went biking in Italy. He worked on an army base in Israel, and all sorts of fun things, and at the end of the year, he came home, and I said, get a job. You can't sit here and not do something. So he said, well, I've always wanted to make salamis, and I looked at him, and I said, fine, go make some salamis. Right. Never dreaming. We would be sitting here 10 years later with a USDA plant making salamis. Well, that, I mean, you're sort of jumping ahead because the fact that you have a USDA plant is insane because that is an incredible, incredible feat to accomplish. So if I I don't want to waste too much time on it, but if you could just explain to people what was available when you started and what you had to do to make that happen. Well, very quickly, um, we went and we sought out our really fantastic partner, Stanley Fetter, who was making, had a company called Simply Sausages. Right. And uh, he really and truly makes the best sausages. And he and his right-hand production guy, um, Alex, um, who worked with Jose Andres, Mm -hmm. and uh, they made the most fabulous sausages. They make them for, we make them for Haleo, etc., and he already was renting, subbing some space in an existing USDA plant. Okay. And he always 
also wanted to make salamis, but uh, he didn't have the capital. What is this strange fixation with salamis that you have? Do you want to, maybe that's a different show? It's a different yes. show. Can we yeah. right. stay focused, David. I am stay focused. focused. Right. Okay. Right. So, well, salamis are the most difficult thing to get. It's the most difficult license to get from the USDA. Um, it took us eight months to uh, get the approval from the USDA mm-hmm. because it's complicated because it's not cooked. So, like most of the other meats. On, in America, which are all supervised by the USDA, if you're in the wholesale business, um, you either the consumer is going to cook it themselves, right. or in the case of a luncheon meat or something else, it's already pre-cooked. Right. So there's no worries about pathogens. Mm-hmm. Salamis are a completely different animal in that they're cold fermented first, that process, similar to like beer, blue cheese, yogurt, etc. And then after that, put in an aging room. So okay. it's a, you have to be very careful to do it right. Mm-hmm. And okay, so, but you were doing sausages. So Stan first. was doing the sausages. Mm-hmm. We went to him and uh, we said, How about making salamis? We all loved the idea. Stan always wanted to do it, didn't have the capital. I had just sold my interest in my food distribution business. I said, uh, I have a I'll, couple shekels. I can put right, them in. I'll do it. Here goes but, my retirement. There right. goes the retirement <laughs> and the retirement fund. Uh, so anyway, we just uh, took a shot at it, and we bought some units from Italy, uh-huh. and uh, that was a lot of fun. We put them up ourselves with the owner of the company, who didn't speak a word of English. We had to have our good friend Lou Sclafani come down from Hudson Valley to translate. It right. was a riot, and we put it up, and by the time we got it up and started selling, we realized we were already couldn't even make enough, so we doubled what we sausages did sausages or salamis 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 okay because it takes a long time to make the regular sl- sl- size format salamis mm-hmm. as opposed to the skinny salamis which also take a lot of time but mm-hmm. um so uh bottom line is we expanded we got some more units and then uh, okay but when you say units for the right. lay person yeah okay explain. thank you you're right so they're in the process uh, again or making salamis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first, it's similar to sausage in that you have ground meat mm-hmm. and you're stuffing it, you're seasoning it and stuffing it. But then from there, the part that's different is first, you have special chambers at special temperatures and humidity and you actually add a culture on the outside of the uh, sausages, their mm-hmm. sausages to start with, and that starts a fermentation process. So we use a similar type a strain of culture that you do in beer so that works its way in and yes and starts and, to ferment the meat and mm-hmm. starts to, the meats actually fermenting mm-hmm. and then at a certain point depending on the diameter um it stays there in this case of skinny salamis it stays for a day in the case of our regular size format salamis it stays for a week okay then it goes into a different chamber at a constant temperature and humidity mm-hmm. we have to monitor daily for uh, pH and water levels to make sure that it's when it's ready, it's ready. Okay. And I, I've been to the facility right. and it is pretty impressive. But at what point did you take it over from the USDA? Well, we were always USDA. Right. And, but, but you were using their facility, right? We were using, a, we were sharing space. That is exactly correct. We were sharing space in an existing USDA plant, but they did not have the uh, license for salamis. We had to go, when we got our curing rooms mm-hmm. and our fermenting rooms, we had to get a different license. Right. So once we got that license, then we, 
were able to start producing it and selling it. And at first we sold almost primarily at the farmer's markets and it was so instantly popular mm -hmm. that's when we realized we better get some more right and then we came up with this well let's okay. talk about the the products that you're actually putting out there like the kinds of sausages you're making like when you say skinny salamis i think we should be more we should explain to people the like there's pork there's lamb and how you came up with the recipes for all of them well, okay. why don't you tell them Debbie, okay. it's a crazy story okay so there is a difference between and, and sometimes people use the terms interchangeably but a sausage is not a cured meat the mm -hmm. sausages we make are fresh and then frozen and then there you cook them up the salamis are as mitch just described fermented and uh then uh cured and well, we were making about 13 kinds of different kinds of salamis. We make some out-of-the-box flavors. Uh, in Italy, you wouldn't find these flavors, but we, we went out on a, a limb, and we make an Indonesian flavor profile. We make a Middle Eastern flavor profile. Mm -hmm. kind of goes along with the populations that we have here in, in D.C. and the uh, uh, what I call a very sophisticated palate. Uh, and people love these flavors. Mm -hmm. Well, one day we got a request from a farmer. We make a lot of salamis for farmers with their meats. Sure. Um, we do some custom work for breweries and wineries too. And this farmer said, hey, could you guys make take one of your salamis and make it into a meat snack? So, like the skinny salami. after some experimenting, mm -hmm. we had a meeting and, and somebody dropped in the middle of the table this little meat snack stick. And I looked at it and we all looked at each other and I said, we're on to something here. Oh, without a doubt. Well, but what are those things you buy at 7-Eleven that are... Well, the, well, well those are different. Yeah. No, well, no, 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 no. It's not I'm, the same thing, but... Like Slim Jims. No, that's slim, a very good question. But a question. Slim Jim is a, basically, it's like a, it's like a big pencil it's of cooked. some sort of mystery meat. It well, is mystery. Besides the fact <laughs> that some of the products may not be all natural, the biggest differentiation between the skinny salamis and other meat snacks is that skinny salamis are handcrafted salamis. Mm -hmm. All the jerkies are cooked. They're dehydrated. It takes a couple of hours. The Slim Jim type products, uh, they're just fully cooked. Right. So the biggest thing, whether it's or a, a better or they're smoked, smoked mm -hmm. the biggest thing is we actually make a salami with three different kinds of meats. No one in the United States is doing that. Okay, so you have a, a lamb based one, right? Um, multiple beef ones, and pork? We, How does it work? One, one beef, three pork, and two lamb. Okay. And I mean, they are sold all over the D.C. market right now. Are they sold outside the D.C. region? They yes. are. We, we have are actually, coast to coast. It's, yeah. it's spotty, to be candid with you, mm -hmm. and we're ramping up to uh, sell you know, more across the country. Well, we're on Amazon as well. Right, we're well, on Amazon. Well, and I do want to say that um, for people who are doing um, like paleo mm -hmm. or um, you can Perfect. do that on paleo, keto. right? Like it's for keto, keto. Yeah. right? Low yep. carb, any sort of low carb, high protein diet. These are perfect because well, there's no sugar exactly. and there are no carbs. That's right. Zero carbs, right. zero sugar, high protein, mm -hmm. and uh, low calorie. As a matter of fact, uh, the Keto Crate, which is a subscription, mm -hmm. um, they had us um, send it out to almost 10,000 of their subscribers wow. in a box all across the country. Uh -huh. And uh, we're going to do that first quarter in 2019. We're going to send out a different variety to like 10,000 people. So the word's getting out. Now, given your other entity with the Central Farm Markets, and you mentioned that the Skinny Salamis came as a uh, partnership with a farmer, do you use the product from the farmer's 
in your sausages and salamis? Well, all our products come from family farms. Okay. All um, the they're they're yeah. not all local. When we can get local, we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've bought product from Asher Farms, which is a certified organic farm in uh, Virginia. But usually, to be candid with you, they call us up and say we're running long on something because we're selling so much now that uh, no uh, group of farmers. We actually tried to get lamb from a group of farmers in Pennsylvania, and when we told them our requirements for they the lamb skin salamis, they said, yeah. no way. Right. And we've uh, not only do we have the, the four-pack, which you're looking at here, mm-hmm. but then we found, because of the nutritional component of this it's really good for kids too and we took it into a two-pack uh, so that can go into lunch boxes and all sorts of snack snack rooms at the high-tech companies and things like that that so, makes so much sense yeah. and so now you mentioned when we started talking about sausages that jose andre carries your sausages uses your sausages yes we let's make, back up we we make a couple of sausages that uh they utilize in uh, the restaurants uh, coast to coast mm-hmm. we actually send them out to uh florida and to, to la so we're super proud of that and stan has a long relationship with jose and actually jose sent stan many years ago before we were even involved to learn more of the trade how to make sausages, salamis, etc. in northern Spain. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it's very cool. We're very proud of that. So, and he's a customer all the time, personally, because right, he, he comes, lives He right lives right there. Yeah. Bethesda. Bethesda. I know. Jose lives very close. Um, so what are the varieties of sausages that you are currently... Like, how often do you rotate and change recipes, or is it pretty consistent at this point? We have about... 50? Yeah, 50? we probably have 50. Okay. We, we do a lot of custom work. Uh, we have, uh, there are restaurants here in D.C. that we are doing specific sausages just for their restaurants. Mm-hmm. So, and in other parts of the country And in now. other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So we'll get a request uh, to do something. And so that recipe might stay only for that re- that restaurant. And do you work is it usually that you're working with them on it? Do they Absolutely. come in and like create the yep. recipe with Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Okay, they tell us it. what they're looking for, the flavor profile, and we'll do it. And another thing, we'll work with people like Flying Dog. Sure. And uh, we'll make bratwurst with their beer. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot of custom work, like Debbie was saying. I think it's saying. time to turn on that. that oh, uh, right. So d- while blade. Mitch is slicing up the duck prosciutto, how did duck prosciutto pop in. I mean, the charcuterie craze hit about 10 years ago, like right as you right. guys were launching. Right. And I mean, but duck prosciutto, even to this day, is a real, it's a real high-end product. It's it just is, not something you is. find everywhere. Yeah. And we use, uh, we use the best duck we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, this duck that you're eating today came from the Hudson Valley. Okay. Uh, it was just, it's a love. We have some other products that are in development uh, that will be expanding the line, but this was a real love. And we started playing with it until we got it to where we wanted. And it, it, mm. as Mitch likes to tell people, it's our favorite child. I mean, it's so good. You eat your favorite child. But it <laughs> is um, really delicious. I'm, so, but I'm thinking of killing ours. So. <laughs> let me ask you a question because not everybody has a slicer in their house. So how do you advise people to um, serve it at home? Well, that's a great question because the reality... I am full of great questions. <laughs> okay. Well, that's why you're so good at what you do. <laughs> I just do asides. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, the bottom line is we really did not make this at all for consumers. Okay. And um, we have st- our stands, the Meat Crafters stands at our four markets. And 
people somehow heard about it. And Aaron Kushner, who's a junior partner of ours, who runs those and owns those stands, he says, I'm taking the duck breast prosciutto. I go, well, it's really very expensive. I don't think you're going to sell a lot. People don't have home slicers. It's true. You can have a sharp knife and do a pretty good job at home. Okay. So we took them, and the rest is history. They sell hundreds of duck breast prosciuttos on... On the weekends, it's crazy. We never ever expected that. And is it that. a is it a it's a smoked product? No, no, it's cured. It's cured. It's cured. 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 We don't too. we don't do any. So uh, what does a cured product like? How long does a cured product well, last? First of all, I always tell people. You know, people say what's new, and I tell people, you know what's new? Refrigeration. Right. This is the way <laughs> meat was always preserved: right. smoking, salting, uh, for you know, curing it. Right. So the way it works. In a whole muscle, it could be a prosciutto that you mm-hmm. know from pork, right. or it could be a duck breast. It's about the diameter. So the wider the diameter of the whole muscle, mm-hmm. the longer it takes. You cannot rush the process at all. So like in a prosciutto mm-hmm. from pork, it's 18 it's to joint. two years. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, a duck breast is a smaller diameter, so mm-hmm. that takes six weeks. That, a whole muscle, just so your listeners know, <clears throat> that's not fermented. Okay. So that simply goes directly into the curing rooms. Got it. Okay. So, all right. So if, let's say I bring a duck breast home. A smo- um, a, it's not smoked. I want no, to call it smoked. It's cured. It's cured. A cured duck breast home. I throw it in the fridge. Right. You could even throw them in your freezer. Okay. And they will, you can keep them. People keep two or three in their freezer. And then slice and it up when you want it. it. How yeah. long will it, it stay in the fridge? Well, we keep it in the fridge like we've never... It's like, three I months. don't know right. when yeah. it just, goes bad. Right, it's just because you go it's through It's cured. It, yeah. Right. And uh, in the fridge, of course, it, it keeps it longer. Mm-hmm. But in the old days, quote-unquote, people would keep these kind of products with their roots right. in the root cellars, the carrots, the cabbages, sure. etc. That's amazing. So what are some of your new products that are coming, hopefully, to market soon? Can we get a little foray into that? Well, I think we're going to have another, maybe one or two new skinny salami flavors. Okay. Uh, And possibly... Like what? Come on. (laughs) Well, we're thinking of maybe, uh, you know, hooking up with an American um, bourbon company or something like that. And doing that with the beef or uh, pork. And we have uh, we'll have a special series, but we can't tell you yet. Okay. Of sausages that will be uh, unique to Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's on the back burner. That so sounds to speak. really vague. I just want to say for the record, <laughs> there was no information. Wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. All right. Wait a minute. Trump sausages. No. no, no. <laughs> oh my God. No. no. But uh, we have a lot of really outstanding chefs here in D.C., and a lot of the chefs have their own recipes. So we are going to take those rest, uh, work with those chefs in creating a line of sauce. I love that idea. I think that makes so much sense okay. right. because the DC market right now. I mean, as we talked about your, what's the matter? Oh, Why, as do it, I look oh, like something's the matter? I know. I thought you were saying something. As no. we talk about, you know, your farmers markets, like <laughs> chefs really. They go to your markets, right. and um, they're working closely with their farmers. I mean, it used to be like a trend and like a buzzword to be like, you know, farm to table and all that kind of stuff. But now it's really a part of how most 
successful restaurants in this area work. Yeah, they try to have something. And some of our farmers have grown to the point where they work with uh, some of the distributors or they self-distribute, like the Liberty Delight Farms. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in D.C. once a week, selling to better restaurants uh, another day of the week. Our fishmonger actually started in the wholesale business, and we sort of begged him, hey, you're selling restaurant-quality fish. Come on, please try our markets. And they did, and they've been wildly successful. I mean, it's so funny because I just don't think people think they can go to a farmer's market and get fish or lobsters. Right. You well, know what I mean? Well, we it's very meaningful to us. It was our plan from the day one. We want people to be able to shop for almost everything, you know, you're not. Well, if you think about it, except limes. for paper goods and uh, you right. know, and uh, well, actually at, at Mosaic, I like to say to people, and this is true, you can get soup to nuts there. Soup to nuts, <laughs> right? so yeah. everything. I wish I'd said that, right. but so, I did. Uh, we even brought in uh, you, for you guys our special door hanger. Where you oh. can tell the uh, oh yeah, it says on the other side, Shh, do um, not disturb. We're hiding, hiding the, the salami. salami. Yes. I told you that was you know. That's uh, I think it's funny. Obvious, but oh my god, we'll put Give it on our we'll put it on our door and see what happens. Maybe okay, our daughter will stay away. Right, I don't know. exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's tell everybody where they can find both the markets and where they can find Meat Crafter products. Well, you can go to centralfarmmarkets.com. All, all four markets are there. All the hours, all the different uh, things for each market, you'll find them there. So centralfarmmarkets.com. And then meatcrafters.com and skinnysalamis.com. Skinny Salamis has its own little page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find all the products we do sell online. If you need anything, just call us. Mitch and I are always available. Uh just give us a ring, and we'll help you out with whatever you need. Excellent. And if you're hearing this and you're not in the D.C. area, they'll send it to you. Right, because you can Absolutely. order it on Amazon, right? You can well, order the skinny salamis on Amazon. Everything crazy. else from the uh, sausages and the large salamis and the duck breasts, we will ship right out to you. Well, it's a good thing Excellent. you retired, because otherwise you'd be doing so much right. more. Right. We do ship out, and it's uh, we are so surprised since we get copies of all the orders, and we'll get orders from, like, Oklahoma. This I remember this very specific. A tiny town in Oklahoma. It was killing me. So I called the guy up. I go, "How did you hear about it?" And he said, "I have a friend that lives in Maryland, shops at the farmers market, and so it's so interesting to see how the Isn't word amazing. can spread." Yeah, so we were cool. like stunned. Excellent. All right. All right. Well, we want to thank you both for joining us today. Well, thank you. Um, well, thank you. It's nice when nice people are successful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we want to thank everybody for joining us today on Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast here in the Line Hotel. Uh, we're off for a couple of weeks, but when we come back, um, Vic Albisu's in studio. He's like just that. opened he's up. bringing some good food. Taco Bamba. Taco Bamba. And he's oh, just opened oh, oh. up Poco Madre. And he has an entire Mezcal program. We're going to get an education. So thank you both again for joining thank us today. You. Everybody have a delicious week. Our pleasure. And thank you. The end. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. 
follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.